You can be open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be continuing in there. Uh, that's page 1208, 1208, if you're using the Bible provided for you there in the back of uh, the this, uh, pews there. And I uh, just want to remind everyone that uh, we're preaching through 2 Peter and overarching theme is a life that lasts. We're talking about Peter's warning us how to live out our Christianity uh, in, the, in a hostile world, really. Uh, in 1 Peter, he talked more about the hostile world. In 2 Peter, he's telling us more about ourselves. But uh, we come to a place that, that is ex- extremely um, hostile. I, I know that you may not have known every song we sang. Um, most of us who are here a lot we're at least slightly familiar with most of them. And that last uh, hymn, you might not know at all, but that's a, that's a great hymn. But, um, but every song that we just sang, in, in some ways, was directly related to this text. And, and I know Pastor Andy reads ahead, knows where I'm headed and things like that. But, man, they were all just about the things, the way I want to approach this. Because this is about... God's judgment on the wicked, but his rescue of the saved. And we just talked about that in Sunday school or connection groups or small group Bible study, whatever words you like to use there, uh, about Daniel and how he was in captivity, yet God was rescuing him as he followed God. And that's a great positive example of what I'm going to be talking about <clears throat> this morning. But, uh, and so today I'm calling it Alone is Not Alone. And uh, we're in 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. And so, let's just read those together. Uh, now that you're seated and comfortable, you can stand back up. All right, thank you. I, don't, I, don't, I hate to do that to you, but I just, I like us to stand up. Um, so, whether you're looking at uh, a, a book or your phone or whatever, 2 Peter 2 verse 4 For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. We're going to stop in the middle of verse 10 there. So would you join me in prayer right now? That would be helpful. Father, in Jesus' name, we step in front of your throne by the authority in the name of Jesus Christ to say, Lord, we need you. We need you desperately. And we thank you uh, that... That this song we just sang, that that answer is here in this text to turn our eyes upon you. For no matter what is going on around us, our peace is not when peace is around us, but when peace is in our heart. And that peace comes only because of Jesus Christ who made us not enemies of God, but took that we were enemies and made us sons of God. 
So now we have peace with God, and now we can have the peace of God in our lives. And so, Lord, help us to understand that today, that you rescue the godly. Maybe not in ways we can see or, or understand, but, Lord, ultimately we will all be rescued and be with you together in heaven. And we look forward to that ultimate day as well, as whatever you're going to do in our lives now. And in the midst of uh, suffering here, Lord, we can know that you are with us. Lord, we ask right now that you would rebuke the devourer, rebuke our enemy for us, bind him, open our eyes, our hearts, so we can behold wonderful things out of your word and understand them. Lord, I'm not sufficient for these things, so I pray that you would guard my mouth and tongue. I would say what you want me to say. But Lord, only you can help us to understand what your word says. So we are asking that you do that. We open ourselves up to you now. Lord, speak to us and speak to me and I will obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, y'all can sit back down now if you want to. Don't you like to be rescued? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you need, needed to be rescued. I, I, I told my wife once uh, that I wanted to write up a card and put it in my wallet that said, if you find me dead in unusual circumstances, I didn't kill myself, I'm just this stupid. So... <laughs> So I've had a lot of those times where it could have gone a different way, but it didn't. And I'm still here. So I thank God for that. Um, I, I remember one time in, in particular in my mind, uh, I, I grew up with a great fear of water. It kept me from uh, really uh, accepting the Lord until God re he really moved my heart to accept him. Because I was afraid of getting baptized. I, I think I've told you that. The first time my face was underwater was in the baptistry pool. You know, I'd wash it with a wash rag, but I, I'm not getting underwater. And uh, so I came up coughing and spitting, but we did it. And it was wonderful. So eventually I got tired of being that way. So I tried to teach myself to swim and I was doing kind of good. My, my brother-in-law has been in my family a long time. And I was still a little kid. We went on vacation. He went with us. And we, we always had to get a pool, a uh, hotel with a pool, right? Not a pool with a hotel, but a hotel with a pool. You remember that? And, and, and back then it was usually motels. I, I, some of y'all don't know what a motel is, but I've been in plenty of them. And so it had a pool and we're out there. And so I, I wanted to jump in the middle, you know, and, and I go out in the deep water and I can't swim very well and I wasn't swimming at all. So I knew what I could do, hold my breath, find the bottom, kick off the bottom, and just keep moving toward the side. I didn't hear what my mom said, but my mom yelled, oh my gosh, Stuart is drowning, Frankie help him, because he was known as Frankie back then. But I did come up that time for breath, and all I saw was my brother-in-law coming at me like this in the water, and by the time he got to me, I was on the side. But I was so glad he was coming to rescue me, you know? Hey, have you been in a bad situation? You might have been, saw the wreck coming, and you're just, oh, Lord, you know, you went Carrie Underwood. Jesus, take the wheel, because we're about to die here. Uh, we, we always can find ourselves in a place where, boy, we need someone to rescue us. And sometimes in the Bible, people were not rescued. And God's going to show us the end of the wicked. But in that, he wants to encourage us that our end is a lot better. King David wrote in one of the Psalms, uh, I almost went astray when I saw how prosperous the wicked were. It's like, God, why are you letting them be that way? He said, until I went to the house of God and saw their end. And we, as North American Christians, we call what we have first world problems. 
You know, some people in this world are wondering, will they live another day because they don't have very much to eat or nothing at all? They don't have a good shelter. They don't have just the necessities of life. And we get angry because they got the order wrong at Starbucks. So we, we don't have problems like some people do. But we need to understand that there is a day coming when there will be a great ending of our life or of this world. And so today I want you to take this statement home with you. When you think you're alone, God is there to rescue. When you think you're alone, God is there to rescue. And God gives us, through Peter, some examples here. And uh, it says in the very first verse we read, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That verse may sound confusing to you. Like, well, when did that exactly happen? Overall, we understand that there was an angel that back then, his name was Lucifer, uh, that he was very likely the, the strongest, biggest, mightiest, most one that God made. And one day this created, and the Bible calls those angels sons of God, the Ben Elohim. They are in one way a son of God. We're a son of God by the adoption through Christ, right? But they were created sons of God. They were created to serve God. And then this chief angel amongst them rebels against this kingdom. Now, that's not good. Not at all. And we, we believe, we have to kind of infer from different scriptures, but, but some other angels went along with him. And the Bible here is telling us that God didn't spare them. God didn't spare them at all. In fact, he put them under judgment in a way that they could never repent. That's why God's mercy and grace to us is so amazing. We were made lower than the angels. And when we rebelled against God, God provided a Savior. Right there at the rebellion in Genesis 1 and 2, God made man, made him perfectly. In chapter 3, man disobeys the one thing he had to not do, he did it. You know, God said, don't do that. And that's the one thing he did. And when God comes to them and talks to them, he said to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity or you're going to be the enemy of the seed of the woman. And you're going to, he's going to crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. And he was talking about sending Jesus and Jesus coming. In Genesis 6, 2, we read this, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives, any they chose. And so these group of angels came to earth, and this was part of that rebellion, and took human wives. They rebelled against God's order. And the results of that was so wicked, the, the world got so messed up, the flood had to come to wipe out all of that flesh. And we're going to see Noah next. And so I'll say something about that when we get there. But in Jude 6 is where we read about their their judgment. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Those angels are chained and right now waiting final judgment. And so God punished angels when they sinned, yet he granted us mercy. 
He granted us forgiveness. He granted us grace, that undeserved payment. And then he goes on to talk about Noah in verse 5. He says, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Every culture in the world has a story of a flood. And, and the biblical flood is the right one, okay? The, the story we read there is how it happened. There are people that say, oh, there's a different flood story. There's, a, you know, the Bible's Robin. no. It doesn't work that way. This is, this is the one that everybody has. But the point is, every culture in the world remembered there was a flood and passed the story down. And so, they're there. I, I think I told you guys, it might have been another group, but uh, I think it was the first year we were here. We went to Southern Baptist Convention. It was out in Arizona. And we went and, and into a jewelry store and out there, out west, you can get turquoise and you can get some other jewelry, but the stone or the jewelry is orange. And I wondered, what is that? I've never known. So I asked the jeweler, I said, I know this blue stuff's a stone called turquoise. What's that orange stuff? He said, fossilized seashells. I said, really? Where do you get those? And he pointed to a mesa. We were 2,000 feet above sea level. Top of that mesa was 4,000 feet above sea level. He said, from the top of that mesa over there. Fossilized seashells 4,000 feet high on top of a mesa out west. Because just read any new article about a new fossil being found. It was once a tropical region. It once was under water as well. So the world before the flood was full of sin. In Genesis 6, 11, the Bible says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. That rebellion of angels had created corruption and violence. Mankind had been corrupted because of what happened. In verse 2, Noah was, the, uh, not verse 2, uh, but it says, Noah was the only righteous man on earth. In Genesis 6, 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, and notice this word, blameless, in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah was pretty much the last man standing. And God said, Noah, I need you to build me a boat. It took him a long time to build that boat. It wasn't real fast. It, I think it was 130 years, something like that, to build a boat. Can you imagine the ridicule he got? What you doing, Noah? I'm building a boat. You're not near any water. I know water's coming. What do you mean? It's going to rain. It didn't ever rain yet. They said, what's rain? Well, water's going to fall out of the sky. <laughs> gotcha, Chicken Little. Sure. If you know the story of Chicken Little, the sky's falling. sky's falling because he got hit in the head with a piece of corn. But the sky was falling. Noah told them for 130 years, but they didn't listen to him. Noah walked with God. And God saved Noah and his family, but destroyed all the others. And Genesis 8.1, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Do you know something about Noah? He didn't get out of the flood. He was in the flood. But he was rescued by God in the flood. Now again, God doesn't rescue rebellious angels, but he rescues men. And then the third example he gives us is good old Lot. Lot is the nephew of Abraham. And 
there was a time where Abraham and Lot come into, into what we call the Holy Land. And Abraham said, okay, which way you want to go? I'm going to go one way. You're going to go the other. Our, our flocks are too, too much for us to stay in one spot. They're going to spread out for them to get enough food. And one way didn't look so prosperous, and the other way looked lush and green. And Noah said, I'm going, uh, Lot said, I'm going that way. And Abraham said, fine. And, he went, and Abraham went the other. And because of God's blessing on Abraham, God gave Abraham some promises. And Noah went to live. It was actually 10 cities there, but collectively it was known as Sodom and Gomorrah. When people ask me where I'm from, I say Charleston. Technically, I'm from North Charleston. But if somebody tells me they're from Charleston, I say, what part? And they'll say Somerville or Goose Creek, you know, or Pocataligo. No, that's not a place, actually, but it is a place, but not around Charleston. It's because why? It means that whole area. And so Sodom and Gomorrah were 10 cities, and they were, and the, if you look on a Bible map, and if you, some Bibles have maps in the back, and you see the Dead Sea, at the bottom part, it looks like there's a little indent, and then you can almost break off that little bottom. That's where they were. And once it got destroyed, it just became a basin, and Dead Sea flowed on down into that, too, and filled it up. So Lot goes and lives there, and if you don't know the story of Lot, the, it, it, you think America's bad, they were worse, okay? And I won't tell the story of everything that happened there, but God turned that city to ashes. Now, if you just read about Lot in the Old Testament, you think this guy is really compromising. He's living in the worst place in the world you could live. And why doesn't he just move? I mean, I've often wondered when people complain about where they well, they move if you don't like where you live, you know. But Lot didn't do that. And Genesis 19 gives us this story. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities, what grew on the ground. Sodom and Gomorrah are decimated. All ten cities, they are flattened into ash. I didn't say it in case you don't know. God sent two angels to Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah to rescue him. And again, the parts of the story I'm not telling, you can read, but just... Basically, all the men of those cities were asking Lot to let those men out so they could abuse them. And uh, Lot said no, and the angels had to blind them. They locked the door. They said, you got to get out of here. And what we find uh, in Genesis 19, 15 through 17, as morning dawned, the, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here lest you be swept away in the punishment of this city. Now, if I had angels visiting me, and I'd seen them glow so bright, all the men in the city went blind, and they said, you need to get out of here, I think I'd be getting out of there. But the Bible goes on to say, but he lingered. You know, sometimes God wants to rescue you, and you linger. We've, we've been having a dry spell, haven't we? If we get too much rain now, we're going to have a flood, aren't we? There was a time there was a flood, and they were trying to evacuate everybody, and the water had risen up to about the level of a first floor, and rescuers came up in a boat, and there was a guy in the house that said, dude, get in the boat, we'll rescue you. He said, nope, I prayed about it. God said he's going to rescue me. So I said, you need to get in the boat. He said, no, go on, I got it. God's going to take care of me. So the boat went on. He got it to the second floor. Boat came back by. Said, "You better get out." It's the second. He said, "Nope." God told him he's going to rescue me. Water kept rising. Got up on the roof. 
They came by a third time. It's your last chance. You better get in the boat. He said, no, God said he would rescue me. And then he was swept off the house and died. He got to heaven and said, God, I thought you said you'd rescue me. He said, I sent you three boats. <laughs> you get a chance. Get out, man. But the, so guess what? So the men, the angels, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and brought them out and set him outside the city. When you make an angel lose patience, <laughs> that, give me your hand. And they drag him out of the city. And by the way, once they got out, they said, go there. And he went, that's too far. Can I just go here? Okay, just go there. Just get out of our hair. We got to do something here. And as they brought him out, one said, escape for your life. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And God destroyed those ten cities. But when we read about Lot in the New Testament, right here in Peter, it says he was a righteous man. That sin was grieving his heart. Why? Because he was the only guy living for God in the midst of an evil, evil, wicked, grotesque society. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Maybe at work. Maybe when you watch the news. Lord, all that love you are gone and I alone have left. That's what the prophet said. And the Lord said, oh, I got 7,000 people. I haven't bowed the knee. You just don't realize it. Sometimes you're not alone when you think you are. But do you know that feeling of being alone and that there's no help coming? I'm, I'm going to skip down to the last part of verses 9 and 10 because... I want to end on, on, a, on a positive note. So I'm going to take it a little out of order. And when you look down there in, in verse 9, it says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You see, those who don't come to Christ are under judgment. Everybody knows and can quote John 3.16 pretty much. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that all those who believe on him... He's going to say they won't perish, right? The next verse says, because he didn't come to bring condemnation because the world was condemned already. You see, when you were born, you were condemned. When you were born, you needed a Savior. Why? Because you had done so much bad? No, because you inherited a sin nature from Daddy Adam. And that's been passed down to every child born since Adam. Through the Father, their sin nature is passed along to every person and so the first time you can make a decision you're going to make the wrong one because you don't have the nature that God wanted you to have and what happens when we come to Christ and we say Lord I know I'm a sinner and I, I want you to be the Lord of my life I want you to be the boss of my life Ezekiel even prophesies that, that God will take out that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. You know, write his word on our heart so when we read his written word it respond our our soul our our heart is the way we describe it, can respond back to God. And that is the only way we can be made righteous. The Bible says we have no righteousness of our own, but the righteousness of Christ. That's why he had to be a human and live a perfect life. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became a human being and lived a perfect life. People say, well, he's God. Of course he's perfect. No, he made himself vulnerable to sin, but he passed the test. And that you can read about that when Satan tempted him in the, in the wilderness. And Jesus passed the test. 
And then he lived his whole life. He never disobeyed God. He always did what God wanted him to do. And he fulfilled the law of God with his life. The law of God, when it's applied to us, we can only say guilty. Anytime you read about sin in the Bible and what God's demands are about sin, and it's not the kind of things we think it is usually. Sin is really a rebellion against God. We say, we don't like the way you do things. We're going to do it our way. And that is our real sin when we rebel against God's revealed word to us that we find in Scripture, lived out in Christ. But by Christ living that perfect life, he took that punishment of death upon himself, dying on a cross. Just read that this week in my quiet time in Ephesians. He took the handwriting that was against us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And Jesus became, who had been the embodiment of perfect humanity, became perfect sin on that cross for us and paid that price so that we could go free. The Bible here in Peter says final judgment is going to be overwhelming. That final judgment is going to be overwhelming. That word keep, that it says he's going to keep the, uh, the unrighteous until punishment. That word keep is to guard. It means to keep an eye upon. It means it prevents from escaping. There is no escape except in Jesus Christ. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. He is the only gate. He is the only way. You say, well, that sounds very narrow-minded. Well, it's not narrow-minded. It's just the truth. There is no other way to God. Every other religion in the world is man trying to work his way to God. Christianity is God came to man and rescued us. He didn't show us a better way. He pulled us out of the pool. He pulled us out of the water. He pulled us out of the pit. He pulled us out of the trouble we've put ourselves into. And he literally rescued us just like those angels rescued Lot, dragging them out of the city. The unrighteous just means the wicked. Under punishment, I, I thought this was interesting, that word punishment uh, found in this text is a Greek word, because the New Testament is written in Greek, K-R-I-S-I-S. -I -S. You want to pronounce that in English? Crisis. <laughs> It'd be Christus in Greek, but crisis. Real be crisis. But it's where we get our word crisis. It means condemnation damnation, judgment. Especially, notice what he says there in verse 10, and especially those who indulge, and notice, in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. What are those two things? One I just said. It's the, the desire to disobey God and to have your own way. That's what Satan did. That's what he led uh, Eve and Adam to do, to have their own way, hoping that... Uh, that they would be like God instead of letting God be God and you be what he made you to be. It's when we want to be the boss, when we want to run our own life, when we want to be in control, we're rebelling against God. But when we submit to his authority, he saves us, he rescues us. And the second, despite despising authority. It's the same thing. I don't like authority. I don't like what they're telling me. I'm going to do my own thing. I have a sensual desire. I want to please myself. I don't want to please my authority. God calls us to live our life to please him. Jesus said, it is recorded in the Gospels, I always do the thing that pleases the Father. That's pretty cool. 
Because we have to say, I rarely do the thing that pleases the Father. And that's as a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you never do the thing that pleases the Father. It takes Christ in us for that to happen. And Christ in us is the person of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity comes and takes residence. But look at the first part of verse 10. It's, it's in there so we have a we hope, okay? Uh, but in, in, at the beginning of verse 9, I should say, then the Lord, but the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. It's just one little phrase. But God knows how to rescue you. He knows how to rescue the righteous even in our imperfections. Even where we are wrong, God can rescue us out. What, what is the, here's what the devil does to us. He whispers in our ear, if you're a believer especially, because if you're not a believer, you, you, it's not a temptation, you just, you just want to do it anyway. I can resist anything but temptation. <laughs> right? And the Satan just comes and he whispers to you, you're, you're looking at something, you want to do it, and he whispers to you, Grace. Grace, God will forgive you. Just do it anyway. God will forgive you. And the moment you do it, he starts screaming in your ear, judgment, judgment, judgment. You know why you feel guilty? Because you are guilty. You need forgiveness. You need somebody to take the sin away. And the Bible says God knows how to do that. Remember, he rescued Noah. He rescued Lot. Think about those two guys. They were alone in a crowd. Noah was the only righteous guy in the whole world. We don't know how many people were alive then, but probably more than we would guess. And that makes it a trial just because they were alone. When you are the only, if all the salmon are, are swimming one way and you're swimming against it, you're an oddball. You're wrong. You're just, you're going the wrong way. But what if that one salmon going that way is going the right way and everybody else is going wrong? That's who we are. We're living in a world going the wrong way and we're swimming upstream to that pressure. That makes it a trial. A trial of exhaustion, really, but a trial of looking different. Not wanting to... You don't want to feel ostracized. You don't want to feel odd. You feel alone when you do that. But you're not alone because if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you. and You know... Today, me and God can do anything. And that means God can do anything, and I can go along for the ride, right? Secondly, the conduct of the world makes it a trial. When all the world is saying, you're crazy, God doesn't care, you're nuts, he loves everybody. He, He does, but he judges. There's a judgment for the unrighteous, and when we don't submit ourselves to his authority... You don't get to go to heaven because you didn't know any better. Because now you do. You can't do what God doesn't want you to do. You've got to submit to him and listen to him and obey him. Because here's been my experience. But I believe the Bible talks about this. And I, I've just seen it everywhere. I, I, the Christian is going, will sin. We, we understand that. We'll do things we shouldn't do. But when whatever means God uses to point that out to us, we'll repent. We'll turn away from our sin. We'll say, you're right. When we see it in the scripture. Now, if somebody just comes up and goes, I don't think you ought to be doing that. I don't care what you think. Show me what it says in the Bible. And if you show me in the Bible, you're right. I got to change my, I got to repent and change how I do things. I got to change my mind about that. 
That's what God calls us to do. And, and I've I just seen the believer will repent. That's why the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. Because when he knew he sinned, he would, you're right, I sinned, let me repent. The biggest sin that is recorded about him, he took one of his best friend's wives and she was found with child. So then he didn't want the best friend to know that he had done that. So he had him killed in battle. Now that's real wonderful. He's an adulterer, he's a liar, and now he's a murderer. And he's the king, so he can get by with it, right? He's got power. And somebody pointed this out to me the other day. God had always spoken to David when he was young and running from Saul and fighting those early battles. He could ask God, and God would tell him things. But now God's got to send somebody else to tell him because he's not listening to God. And Nathan, the prophet, walks in and tells him a parable, a story, and about a man who stole his neighbor. He had a bunch of sheep and he stole his neighbor's only sheep to slaughter it to feed to some guests. And David, who had been a shepherd, got super angry about that and said, who's this guy? I, he needs to die. And Nathan points his finger at him and says, you're the man. And David, instead of being a king and taking off his head as any other king would, falls in repentance before God. That's what happens when the believer is faced with a sin. And God brings us that warning so that we can repent. And when we live in a world that is going one way and telling us we're crazy for saying no to what the world says is okay, that makes it a trial. And when you do all that, you're going to stand out like a sore thumb. When you don't indulge in what everybody else is doing, come on, man, what, you think you're better than us? Oh, you're just so righteous. Oh, you think you're holy. I bet you think I'm a horrible sinner. They're trying to make you feel bad. He's like, no, I think you, you're like me. Only I found someone who would forgive me and ask me not to do what you're telling me to do. So I'm going to obey the one who brought me forgiveness and is going to take me to heaven. Would you like to meet him? You don't have to yell at him. You don't have to fight back. But when you stand out in a crowd and everybody starts noticing and they start mocking you, that makes it a trial. You see, God can always rescue you. That word rescue means to flow away. He'll just flow you out of the, out of the problem. He'll take you out of the danger. And the word here says that he can rescue the godly from those trials. That word godly means pious or like God, what God would do. In Revelation 7 and verse 3, God says this, by the way, this is, catch hold. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. In the midst of God's judgment falling at the end of time, we see in Revelation, God tells the angels, don't start the judgments until we get all the believers sealed so that you will know which ones not to hurt, which ones to rescue. You remember when Jesus was, in, was here with us, walking around with us in his body in the New Testament. He tells a parable about a farmer who had sowed wheat and then his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Now, a tear was a plant that looked like wheat until they got to maturity, and then the wheat would grow wheat, and the tear doesn't have anything. 
And so in the parable, the servants say, your enemies come and sow tares among the wheat. Do you want us to tear up the tares? It's a different spelling. Anyway, it's a plant, okay? You want us to get the weeds out. Let me put it that way so you can follow along. And the, and the master said, no, leave it alone because you might pull up the wheat by mistake. When it bears fruit, you'll know which was which. And at the harvest. And then he said, so at the end of the world, the angels will come because there's going to be tares planted among you. But the angels will harvest the wheat, but they're going to leave the tares to be burned in the fire. And that's what's going to happen. And Revelation 7, 3 says that. In fact, in chapter 9 and verse 4 of Revelation, he says, They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. It doesn't tell us what that seal looks like. Probably won't be visible to the mortal eye. But God seals his believer. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians, the Holy Spirit is the seal of God's promise to us. So whatever God or the angels can see, and in Revelation he talks about the forehead, the Holy Spirit living in us is the seal of the promise. When we express belief that Jesus was God, but he became a man, and that he lived his life for us, and then he died in our place, was buried, and rose again to show that he was God, and that he had done that so that we could be saved. And we say, I believe you are God. I believe you are the Messiah, the Christ, that came from heaven to die for my sins, and I want you to take away my sins, and I want to be your slave. I want to be your servant. I want to obey you. The Bible says he gladly comes into our life, and he sends the Holy Spirit to seal us. So that we can know we're righteous. So if someone today points a gun at me and says, I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to kill you if you don't renounce Christ. I can say, okay. (laughs) I'm not renouncing because I know where I'm headed. Because I've been sealed. Now there, I I can tell you all kind of anecdotal stories of people that God rescued in such a situation. And I can tell you a bunch more that they got shot and died. But both get to go to heaven one day. See, it doesn't matter how you die. It matters how you live. And it matters where you're going when you quit living. I was blessed to have a father that was really smart. Had a sixth grade education, but don't know anybody anybody much wiser than him. As a little boy, I've told that story a thousand times. I'll tell it again. He told me to do something, and I said, I don't want to, I don't have to, or something like that. He said, you're right, son, you don't have to. You only have to do two things. Die, and live till you do die. So what God's telling us, you're going to die. How are you going to live till you do die? How are you going to work out your life? The Bible says God can rescue us from these trials. Why would he do that? To show his power and his purpose. Because when we say no to the enemy and yes to him, we rob him of his power and influence in our lives. When we say yes to Jesus, we become an example of God's grace in our life and shows his power over our enemy. At the cross, Jesus defeated the enemy, Satan. And when we follow Jesus and obey him, we show the power he's put in our life in the person of the Holy Spirit. What I want you to understand is when you're alone or in need and you wonder where God is, if you're a believer, he's with you. He's with you in the trial. 
Now, he might not take you out of the trial. He might leave you in it, but he will go through the trial with you, and he'll bring you out at the right place. Sometimes you're in a trial that results in death because none of us are going to escape that. So that shouldn't even be our concern. Our concern is, will I be faithful in the trial? And if I'm faithful in the trial, ultimately, whether it's now, a little bit later, or when I die, God is going to rescue me. And I say that not because I think I'm good or any confidence I have. My confidence is in the Word of God that tells me so. That all those who come to him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. To all who believe on his name. And so I just exhort you today to believe on Christ's name. And avoid the judgment that is sure to come. Let's pray.